Our next speaker is Todd Gardner. He's a professor of aquaculture at Carter at Community College in North Carolina. Todd's career has produced a number of scientific publications uh, and the successful culture of more than 50 species of fishes. Uh, he's worked on National Geographic documentaries, commercial aquaculture in Puerto Rico, and in the public aquaria realm in New York. Please welcome one of the most talented aquaculturists out there as he presents The Mother of Invention, How Necessity-Driven Innovation and Partnerships Are Making History in Aquaculture. Thanks. All right, well, the title probably sounds a lot more impressive than the reality of it, but uh, I hope you enjoy it anyway. Um, so, I want to uh, start my story uh, in an event that took place about 25 years ago, and I, I never had any idea at the time it would be shaping my talk now in 2019. But um, really, I, I want to talk about some of the exciting stuff that's happening in aquaculture and sort of tell it in, uh, within a framework of, of, of my history in aquaculture. And this story has its starts before I got into serious breeding. Um, at a very lavish party I was invited to about 25 years ago. I wasn't actually invited, but I was in college and uh, my friend uh, Gary Jones had a company called Ocean Critters and primarily they did aquarium installation and maintenance, high-end aquariums uh, back in the 90s. And he was a returning student at East Stroudsburg University where I was going to school and uh, he asked if I was interested in some extra work one weekend. He had been, not invited, hired to go to a party and set up some big fancy aquariums for a three-hour event and then break them all down at the end. And uh, we were going to be paid very well. And so I said, sure, I was a starving student. I was the kind of student that would drive through the toll lanes and pick up change on my way down the Garden State Parkway to get myself down the parkway to throw into the toll machines. So the idea of making some money on the weekend was great. Um, and this was the most lavish party I've ever seen. That's not really it. That's the closest approximation I could find on Google Images because cell phone cameras didn't exist back then. But uh, this was the kind of party where there was a, an erupting volcano in the center of the island-themed party and uh, they called in this company to set up beautiful aquarium full of fish and uh, needed to be crystal clear by party time. Um, and uh, so I, I did some asking around, found out the party cost about $500,000, this one single party. Um, and after we got all set up and went up to our hotel room to hang out while the guests did their thing before we had to come down and break down, we, we were talking. And um, I said to uh, the guy, Gary, who was in charge, I said, when, when are we going to get paid? He said, oh, oh, we've already been paid. He said, I wouldn't do this party without being paid 100% up front because this guy who hired us, he's a, he's a maniac, and uh, he's been stiffing people left and right. He's, uh, his companies are going bankrupt left and right, and I know a lot of contractors that have done work for him and not gotten paid. So I told the person who was hiring us, we're not doing this job unless we get paid 100% up front. So uh, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. I got to talking about this guy who was locally a little bit famous at the time in the New York, New Jersey area. 
And I said, well, how can, how can you throw a $100,000 party if you're bankrupting companies, uh, $500,000 party if you're bankrupting companies and not paying people? And we just got to talking about this idea of how sometimes when you're a trust fund kid and you're living in, a, you know, in, in this upbringing where you don't need to make money, you, you just have no regard and you, and, and, uh, you tend to um, not need to make things work. You can spend lots of money, you can spend other people's money, you can uh, hire people and, and you just don't have a concept and you don't have a need to make a project work. Sometimes it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work because you have endless do-overs. And uh, it, this night always stuck with me the rest of my life. And eventually, uh, it took me many years to learn my lesson about getting involved with people like that. I, and, and I've been burned on a number of projects where I got involved with people that didn't need to make it work on their end. And so it, it hurt me on my end. Um, I never would have imagined at that time that the guy who was throwing this party would become the president of the United States, uh, but he did. And uh, so sometimes uh, I guess you can, you can pick up the pieces. And... Anyway, my, my next project after that involving aquaculture was working for Sequest, uh, at the time the world's biggest uh, marine ornamental fish hatchery. And um, it was really a very exciting opportunity. And I, I got my start in commercial aquaculture there. Uh, we had about 20 employees. And uh, I had good incentives to stay. Bill Addison, who became a lifelong friend and was the owner of the company, uh, gave me some great incentives. Um, not in the form of pay at the time, necessarily, but you know, if I would put in the time and, and stick with it for the long term, that I could get a, a substantial piece of equity in the company. And uh, I loved Bill, and I loved being there. And um, I got through a lot of great species of fish. Uh, unfortunately, after a few years, I started to realize that uh, the equity in this company meant nothing because Bill told me every month he had to deposit about $20,000 into the company account just to keep it going, which blew my mind because we had tank after tank full of dottybacks that were selling for $20 a piece. Um, he gave me some incentive because what I really wanted to do was work on new species. For, for 20 years, our industry was stuck in this rut of the only captive bred fish were clownfish, gobies, and dottybacks. That's all anyone was raising because they all fit the same groove of, um, you know, the, the same sort of cookie cutter technique of aquaculture. Hatch out the eggs in the larval tank, feed them rotifers, move them onto artemia, move them onto pellets. And, and so, for many years, the only advances we made were just finding new species that fit that technique and, and the tools we had available to us, and, and we stagnated. Um, anyway, I, I did eventually realize, although Bill is a legend in the industry, part of what was happening was that he didn't need to make a profit at this. This was a hobby for him uh, in his retired life, and um, he wanted it to work, he really did, and he put a lot of money into it, but there wasn't an imperative need for the hatchery to make money. So it, it went on there for more than 20 years um, without ever turning a profit. There was one day that uh, the manager declared, guess what, we finally are out of the red. This month, Sequest turned a profit for the first time, and uh, we all celebrated, and they threw a big party. And um, 
a couple of weeks later, she said, I'm sorry, but I've made a mistake and we didn't actually make money that month. So it, it never in its whole history turned a profit. Um, and uh, again, like I said, I, although I churned out Dottiebacks that whole time, my real passion was trying to raise new species. And um, Bill promised me that once I got 30,000 uh, 30, Dottiebacks metamorphosed and in stock and ready to sell, that I could start taking on angelfish and building an angelfish broodstock, which I did. I didn't stay long enough for them to mature and spawn, unfortunately. But one of the things I got to play around with while I was there, uh, among many others, were gramas. Um, they had already been raised, but they were, it's a neat fish. It's a, they're pretty, uh, they're not too terribly hard to raise, um, but tedious. And they didn't exactly fit the groove of the Dottieback clownfish um, goby routine because you couldn't remove the eggs without disrupting the spawning cycle. So we had this elaborate plan of uh, the night watchman was gonna come in with a little siphon tube and a flashlight and siphon out the larvae each night and collect them. And, and that distracted him from his other job of watching the hatchery and keeping thieves out. And, uh, it, it was a lot of work and we, this was my biggest batch of royal gramas I ever raised while I was there. And, and eventually I said, you know what? It's, uh, it, it, this is an $8 fish at the wholesale level and it's very tedious to raise and it took a lot of effort to get these. And for the next 20 years after that, I declared in every lecture I ever gave that the royal grama is unfit for aquaculture because it's not valuable enough, it's common in the wild, and it's too tedious to raise, and so it's, it's a fish that should just continue to be sustainably collected and cross it off the list for aquaculture. Um, and I got frustrated because I really wanted to jump into raising new species. I loved the thrill of getting something that's never been raised before putting my name on it, going down in history as the first person to raise that fish. And I thought, you know what? A commercial hatchery isn't the place to live out that dream because research and development is very expensive. And even if I do develop something, what, you know, now I wanna go talk about it or write an article about it. And I feel like I'm hurting the company if I give away all our secrets and say how I did it. But I don't, I don't wanna keep secrets. I wanna, go, I wanna go write about it and talk about it. And, and Bill would always tell me, you're welcome to write an article, but make sure you leave out some key little thing because we don't want this info. ORA is gonna give us a run for our money. So um, I had this dream and I had this idea, I'm gonna go to graduate school. I left, I got into a graduate school program and I had this dream of tackling new species as a graduate student. I was gonna write my master's thesis on, I was gonna pick a species and write my master's thesis on how to breed some new species. And uh, after my first year, when I was ready to start taking on my project, my advisor, Dr. Kaplan, gave me some great advice that stuck with me. And uh, he said, you can't take on a new species for your master's thesis. You have your whole life to take on new species. You can go build your dream lab after you leave here, but you need to graduate. And if you take on a new species, you're, you could beat your head against the wall for many years trying to figure it out. You need to you need to take something simple. So that's why everyone in aquaculture does their master's thesis on tilapia. You've got to take something that's easy to do, that we know how to do, and well, I didn't want to do tilapia. I wanted to do aquarium fish. So I eventually relented and took on seahorses, um, which had been raised for years, but there was still a lot to learn. So I did my master's thesis on 
raising hippocampus erectus and dietary needs of the offspring. And, and uh, I raised thousands of them, and I thought, this is great. You know, at the time, Ocean Rider was just starting to come up, and we were looking at the prices of seahorses online, $200 and $300 a piece. And I said, wow, this, you know, there's money to be made here. In fact, one of my professors offered to quit his job and go into business with me raising seahorses. And uh, I didn't take him up on it because I know what happens in aquaculture. One day, everything's going fine, and the next day, you can't keep them alive to save your life, and you have no explanation. So I'm producing thousands of seahorses, and uh, I started talking to my advisor, saying, hey, you know, online forums were just starting to come about, and I was talking to people about raising seahorses and posting pictures of my seahorses. Everybody wanted to buy seahorses from me, and my advisor said, you can't do that. It's immoral and unethical, and it's a conflict of interest. We're a university. You can't sell things from a university. And I had this idea in my head then for many years, you just can't sell things out of a university. That's not what it's for. And, um, and then I also had my dreams crushed of, of uh, and th by the way, this is how I ended up with a collection of seahorse artwork and seahorse daggers and CDs that I never got to listen to because I couldn't sell the seahorses, but I had to get rid of them and I couldn't let them go. So I started trading with people uh, on these forums and I have this enormous collection of things I traded back in those days for all the seahorses. He said I could, I could trade stuff. Um, someday I'll auction off this collection of crazy seahorse art. Um, anyway, um, I developed this idea at the time that there must be some place that's the ideal place to do aquaculture research. Obviously, it's not the hatchery because um, you have to make money and you can't give away your secrets and research and development is too expensive. Obviously, it's not the university because students need to graduate and they can't take on something brand new like this. They need to finish their degree and move on and go do research somewhere else, another time. I don't know where. Um, and I couldn't sell stuff out of the university. So I said, you know what? I, I, some of my fellow students at the time were aquarists at the New York Aquarium and uh, they had things breeding there. We got to talking about it. I said, you know what? I think the public aquarium is the ideal place to do aquaculture research. You have lots of fish in big tanks. They're comfortable and they're spawning. And um, you have, you're, you're funded by external sources and, and admissions. You don't need to make money at aquaculture. This is the ideal place. Um, so after graduate school, I went on to work at what was then Atlantis Marine World and is now the Long Island Aquarium, uh, working for Joe Wayulo, who specifically said, we want you to come in and, and do some aquaculture stuff. We want you to, we have a lot of cool things spawning. We want to raise these things. And I said, this is it, my dream job. Um, and I had a lot of great successes there. In fact, of my 50 or 60 marine species I raised, probably at least half of them were raised at Atlantis Marine World. A lot of uh, industry firsts uh, during that time. Um, and I became friends with people in other public aquariums and I started realizing, wow, um, I have a really unique situation here being allowed to do this. I would talk to my friends at the New York Aquarium, friends at, uh, around the country, and they said, yeah, we have things spawning too, but..." I'm not allowed to raise these fish because I have a very specific set of duties. Um, or there's only very specific things I'm allowed to raise. And I thought, what a shame. There's people letting eggs and larvae 
go down the drain and get filtered out of their systems all the time. And um, you know, we need to somehow connect and take advantage of this. And that led to long before the days of uh, Rising Tide and other now famous partnerships, I started talking to my friend Jay Hemdel at the Toledo Zoo. And uh, he said, yeah, we have these, uh, we have these boar fish spawning and they're beautiful and we have no budget for doing any aquaculture. Can I send you some eggs? So he sent me some bags of eggs and that led to the first captive propagation of the uh, boar fish, Capros aper. Um, and uh, that was really exciting to me. And, and since then, of course, as I said, there's been a lot of other partnerships now that have led to great strides in aquaculture. And I realized then there's probably no one ideal place for research and, and production of things like marine fish to take place. Um, all of the best work that's coming out since then has been the result of partnerships, rising tide, partnering with public aquariums, um, and, uh, and, and a couple other partnerships. I, there's a lot of famous ones out there. I want to mention a couple right now that have uh, either impacted my life or impressed me in recent years. Um, a friend of mine at a, a local high school in Southampton, uh, New York, um, got a great, um, it wasn't a grant, it was actually a, as the result of a school bond vote. They, the, the people in the school district voted to allocate a few million dollars to build this beautiful marine lab featuring a lot of aquaculture stuff. And uh, it's really impressive. They've come out, they've already had a couple of industry firsts uh, in the last few years. Their students are learning about coral propagation and fish culture and plankton culture. And I'm uh, also happy to report that one of my successors at the Long Island Aquarium, uh, Rachel Vettier, uh, just became the new manager of this lab at Southampton High School and, and carrying the torch there and hopefully a lot more exciting stuff coming out of there. Um, another of the most impressive uh, things happening in this world in recent years has come out of Roger Williams University, their aquatic science program, um, where they not only have a, an enviable lab. I used to go into my lab at Suffolk Community College on the weekend and I'd have to call security and tell them I was coming and unlock a padlock and open a big giant iron gate and go on and be the only person on campus and go in and spend my Sunday morning or Christmas morning feeding fish and feeding larvae. I went to visit uh, Andy at uh, the Roger Williams lab one day on a Sunday. He was going to give me some old scrap tanks that I was going to take home from my lab and uh, the the whole lab was buzzing. There must have been 20 or 30 people there working, students, and, and everything was in motion. I thought, wow, that's, that's the place maybe to do aquaculture research. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the greatest things that has come out of that initiative there is that uh, Andy, under a grant, started a program to develop what they call the molars, the modular larval rearing systems. Uh, that could be easily replicated and put into other institutions. And part of that grant also was training aquarists at public aquariums to start collecting eggs and start raising some of those things. So, and, and then developed a partnership with them that's led to a lot of really incredible new species getting into the hobby in recent years. Um, Tim Morrissey um, at... Uh, which, uh, 
the um, Omaha Zoo, Henry, Henry Dorley Zoo uh, in Omaha, the aquarium there, um, has also uh, been making some great strides with eggs collected there and has gotten very good at plankton culture, which for many people is the main stumbling block in raising marine fish. And uh, he started an annual workshop to bring in aquarists from other aquariums and train them on plankton culture methods, which has really um, done a tremendous uh, job at getting programs going in other aquariums where, you know, historically public aquariums didn't want to devote the, the energy and the space and the money needed to do this propagation, but now the process is getting streamlined and more efficient and, and they're warming up to the idea. And, and I think Roger Williams and, and Tim's workshop uh, have helped that quite a bit. Uh, in North Carolina, where we now live, um, there's a partnership. In fact, one of the one, somebody that came out of Roger Williams now is running um, a, an aquaculture lab at Carteret Community College in Moorhead City, North Carolina. And they've begun a partnership with all of the state aquariums of North Carolina who um, have decided to allocate some money and devote one of their aquarists, at least part of the time, to doing uh, some aquaculture on site. So at each of the three public aquariums in North Carolina, there's an aquarist and one part-time backup uh, in charge of their aquaculture systems. And here's one of the uh, molars that came out of um, Andy's grant at Roger Williams. And they, it's a compact little room. It's a small space, but they're doing a lot there. This is uh, Sonia Carlson, who is um, at the Pine Knoll Shores Aquarium. And uh, she's also, I need to thank her especially, uh, is the only reason I'm able to be here right now because she's also taking her four-day weekend and spending it full-time in my fish room at home, keeping all my fish alive and raising larvae. Um, but again, this partnership uh, between Carteret Community College and the North Carolina Aquariums has already made some, some big advances in uh, fish culture locally. Um, another one I just recently learned about uh, this is um, Bill Katman at um, Augsburg University, who is a professor and also an aquarium hobbyist, and he's decided to incorporate his love for marine life and marine aquarium keeping into his own lab and got a grant and built a beautiful lab and is now um, getting the... Uh, Getting, getting off the ground and, and gearing up to start producing a lot of stuff. Yet they're not into production mode yet, but they've got a broodstock put together and they have some beautiful reef tanks and they've got plankton culture running. I, I just spoke to him about a half hour before coming down here. and said, what's your plan? What are you going to do with these? Once you start producing massive numbers of fish, what are you going to do with them? Do you, can you sell them? He's not sure. He has that worked out yet. Um, but it always has stuck in my mind what my professor drilled into my head as a graduate student. You cannot sell fish out of a university lab. It's immoral. It's unethical. Um, and uh, what I'm seeing, and I, I need to backtrack a little bit because um, we're starting to get out of that mindset. And, and Andy was one of the first people that uh, kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there are not just loopholes, but legitimate ways around this idea that you can't sell things out of a university lab. You, you absolutely can. Um, at the Southampton College 
high school lab where they've got good production going on, their solution was to start a corporation within the high school and make that corporation part of their business class. Students learn how to start a business and they have a functioning legitimate business that sells the fish that are produced by the aquaculture program. Um, Andy's technique was a little bit simpler. The school just gets a business license and you just have to have the administrators on board. The school gets a business license and maybe some other financial sorcery I'm not familiar with, but, but it works and they're selling fish and it's not, it's not this roadblock that I always thought it was because of what my professor said to me. So I think just the fact that these labs now are able to take some of what they produce and sell it and get it into the hobby, it's, it's great for the schools, they're generating some income. It's great for the hobby. There are species that are being produced that maybe a commercial farm couldn't produce feasibly otherwise. It's getting greater diversity into the hobby. Um, for my own uh, situation, a couple of things to report on here. I, um, last, well, about a year and a half ago, I, I gave up my tenured professor position in New York um, and made a big move. I took a leap of faith. I was jumping into a position that was supposed to exist and ended up not existing. Moved down to North Carolina, set up my fish room. I was going to get this off the ground. And through a series of life-changing events that included Hurricane Florence uh, and some other sad things, I ended up in a situation where I found myself, after many years in this industry, living in a place where I was virtually unhirable. And I started to lose sleep. I started to realize if I didn't figure out a way to make my fish culture work, I was in danger of losing my house. For the first time ever, this wasn't just a thing I was doing for fun at the aquarium or doing for uh, a hatchery that didn't need to make money. Uh, for, for the first time ever, if I didn't make this work, I was in real trouble. And uh, I, was, I spent a lot of sleepless nights thinking about how am I going to save my existence here. Um, and one night, I had this epiphany. I did just some quick math, which I'm not big on doing. did some quick math in my head. And I figured out how many fish I'd need to raise to pay all of my bills. And I thought, wow, that's not a very intimidating number at all. I, I can do this. And uh, for the first night, in about two months, I slept that night. And uh, I, I knew I'd figure out a way. And uh, that leads me to the next partnership that I want to tell you about, and maybe one of the most exciting ones of the last decade, um, Biota Aquariums, headed up by this year's Aquarist of the Year award winner, uh, Tom Bowling, had been jumping into some really cool partnerships, partnering with the Oceanic Institute, um, and uh, we, we started talking about this idea of setting up a satellite hatchery in North Carolina. Property is cheap and utilities are cheap and it, there's a mild climate and we looked at some spaces and we thought about how to do it and, and after a few months of talking about it, Tom said, well, why don't you just keep raising the fish out of your house and we'll just, we'll, we'll make that the beginnings of it. And this is what spawned um, the, the beginnings of Biota North Carolina or Biota East or West, which I, I don't know. They're on the other side of the world. But, um, so uh, we, we have some exciting stuff to report on. And uh, I'm excited to also announce that I'm part of the Biota team now. 
And um, my imperative to start really pumping out some fish made me kind of rethink what I always thought about the Royal Gramas. Um, and uh, of course, it, it took a $1,000 species to give me the incentive to revisit the $8 species, the Royal Grama. But now, after a couple of years of working on the whole Grama complex and working out some of the little quirks of this fish, I realized uh, this is not uh, a fish that needs to be crossed off your aquaculture list because um, it's, it's not hard to raise. It's just, it involves a change of mindset and it, it involves a change in your daily schedule to make it work. Um, they're, they're perfectly raisable. So after, after a couple of years of working on Grama Dijangai, which gave the financial incentive, I realized I can pump out enough Royal Gramas, I think, to, to make it work also. Um, and so this uh, epiphany sort of helped save my life and also um, is, is really exciting news for some of what's to come. And, and I'll get back to, to some of this stuff. Um, but one thing, and, and this has been an underlying theme of most of my talks of the last few years, is that all of these innovations, the exciting new species that have come from biota, from the Oceanic Institute, from Rising Tide, um, from all of these partnerships, all of these new species that have hit the trade in recent years would not have been possible if not for other innovations within the hobby. And really what I want to talk most about today is, is giving credit to these other people and other products in the hobby that have made it possible. I would never have been able to raise at least half the species on my own personal list if not for the work of other people that don't even get recognized. And I think the same could be said of a, a lot of the other producers out there. So um, what I want to get to next is sort of a top 10 list I've come out with of, of products, innovations, inventions in the aquarium industry or related to the aquarium industry that have made all of this stuff possible. I, I, you know, and, and really the origins of this part of the talk started about seven years ago when I was at an MBI workshop and talking to Dr. Wittenrich. And uh, we said, boy, it's a great time to be in aquaculture. It's like there's a renaissance going on. We were stuck on dottybacks, gobies, and those other things, clownfish, for all these years. And suddenly there's angelfish coming out and there's basslets coming out and there's filefish, all these things that were untouchable for all these years, they're just exploding. And why is that? Is that because we're such awesome fish culturists? No, it's not at all. It's because of other things in the, in the industry that have made life easier for us. And I wanna give credit to some of those things. I won't get to them all. I did an informal Facebook uh, survey last week trying to see what other people said about what's their favorite innovation making their life easier uh, as a breeder. And I think the consensus was probably the biggest thing of all uh, was the communication that's happening now that wasn't possible 20 or 30 years ago. And I'm going to leave that innovation out because it, it, it boils down to it was the internet, right? It started with email and then the forums and then, you know, Facebook and uh, it's fantastic and it's really um, propelled the whole industry forward, but I can't single it out as something that's helped aquaculture because it's helped every single industry. In fact, I could argue that more than anything, 
the explosion of innovation that has come out of this has really just helped us to blanket our planet with more humans and concrete. So we'll leave the internet out of it. Um, it's helped a lot. It's maybe the biggest thing that's helped aquaculture, this ability to communicate. But I want to stick with aquaculture relevant or aquaculture specific things for the most part. Um, back at Sequest, we used these 300 gallon round tanks to do our larval rearing and grow out. And um, there was a problem. We had to, if we didn't siphon the bottoms of those tanks every day, the fish would start dying. The, the organics would build up, bacterial blooms would bloom up, and, and uh, we'd start having mass mortalities, especially with the dotty backs. Um, in grow out, you could use a pretty good sized siphon, but starting at about day 10, we had to use an airline tube. So I had a, I had a system of um, 60 of these 300 gallon tanks. At any given time, at least half of them had fish in them, and I had to siphon the whole bottom of every tank every day. So here I was, this uh, feeling like some hotshot uh, marine biologist, and at least 75% of my day, every day, was siphoning fish poop and uneaten food off the bottoms of tanks, and it drove me crazy. And in my mind, I invented this thing that would automatically clean the bottoms of tanks without sucking up all the larvae, and uh, I never actually invented it. Um, but I only recently found out that it actually exists. Someone did invent it. So this is going to be number 10 on my list. And the only reason it's so low down the list, um, besides the fact that I don't have one yet, is that it's very expensive. And it really can't be used for larvae. But there's a mechanical arm that goes around the bottom of this tank very slowly, like clockwork, and pushes all of the food and feces into a trough where the outflow is, and it sucks everything out. And, uh, the, the price is astronomical, again, and I don't have one, but I think it's a great invention, and it could, you know, if it ever comes down to earth price-wise, uh, it could really help out people raising fish in tanks like this. Uh, I don't even remember what it's called. It's, oh, yeah, there it is. Ocean's Design, the self-cleaning tank. Um, another great one that is not aquaculture-specific, just um, these pumps and aerators now that have a built-in battery backup. Um, naturally, that's, that's helpful for anything in the whole aquarium industry. Um, but uh, having survived Hurricane Florence and lots of other power outages in a thunderstorm-prone part of the country, um, I've realized that my broodstock and, and even a lot of my grow-out tanks aren't in grave danger with a couple of hours of power failure. I, I can be there sloshing water around. I can save them. I have a generator. But if I'm at school or if I'm, if I'm somewhere away from my fish room and there's even a one hour power outage and the aerators stop, my artemia is dead, my rotifers are dead, all the very high density stuff uh, dies very quickly. And one day of all my artemia crashed could, could mean the loss of all of my larvae at one time. So um, having a battery backup uh, or a pump with a built-in battery backup that starts seamlessly while I have time to get home and get my generator running is very useful. I, I don't have one of these yet either. I'm living on the edge, but um, this is uh, high on my list of priorities for my fish room. Um, another one that came out of the survey brought up uh, by Tim Morrissey, the proliferation of craft brewing uh, indirectly has helped our industry 
because as any fish culturist knows or any marine fish culturist knows, the biggest bottleneck is algae culture, really. You, you, you know, you can raise some fish without doing live algae, but for most of what I do, if, if you don't have abundant live phytoplankton, you can't grow these larvae. And um, a lot of what we've used historically are bottles that are difficult to clean and um, very expensive. These laboratory-grade polycarbonate carboys can be $200 or $300, um, and they have, some of them have narrow mouth necks that you can't get your arm into, but the proliferation of craft Brewing and home brewing has, uh, has grown this market for home brewing supplies. Um, and one of the most useful things I've found are these big giant carboys with big wide openings that have a little spigot at the bottom where you can get your algae out without um, contaminating, without opening the top and contaminating your culture. And, uh, and, and a whole array of cleaning agents and cleaning tools for them. So uh, this has really helped a lot in my own fish room and, and lots of others as far as I can tell. Um, another real hassle in aquaculture, and even though I've, I, I've tried to get myself off of Artemia many times, I've realized this, there's just no getting away from it. Um, for certain species, it's just critical for a transition food, for grow out. Um, we need Artemia in the industry. And a big problem in dealing with Artemia, hatching and using millions of them every day, is that they have these annoying little cysts. And I spent years decapsulating my Artemia cysts with chlorine. And it's a tedious process. And once you, once, you, once you decapsulate a batch, they have a very limited shelf life in the refrigerator. You have to use them fast. I had a lot of contaminated fungus batches of cysts I had to throw away. If you go a few seconds too long in the chlorination state, you, you go right through the cysts and you kill a whole batch of Artemia. And you know, at $100 a, a liter for cysts, uh, you can't afford to do that. Um, so one of my favorite innovations is the SEPART Artemia cyst separation system. Um, it's, this, is a, this is a great innovation. I don't use it because right now I'm not on a big enough scale to use it at home, but the idea is they infuse the cysts themselves with iron that makes them attracted to a magnet and then they run after the cysts are hatched out, they run the hatched water and cysts and, and artemia mix through this pipe that's lined with magnets and these, these iron-infused cysts stick to the magnets and the artemia flows out nicely. Um, so I, that's just a really neat one that I, I haven't used yet, but I think it's, it, you know, on larger scales, I see this as a, a revolutionary tool in fish culture. So uh, another tool I'm about to mention, which is another thing that I don't have and don't use yet, but I really, this is as a result of the survey. Um, um, what I noticed in raising Lyopropoma was that they are synchronized to the lunar cycle. Um, their spawning is synchronized to the lunar cycle. And even though without any external changes in stimulus and photo period temperature, and I kept them in a room that stayed a uniform temperature and on a, on a timer that I didn't alter all through the year, they very much adhered to the lunar cycle, the uh, Lyopropoma rubra, 
would spawn or have a peak of spawning around the full moon, and the Lyopropoma carmabi would have a peak of spawning activity around the new moon, but it was a little bit scattered still. But as I realized this was happening, once I finally looked at my records and realized that they had this connection, I started manually changing uh, some timers. Um, there, was, there was a seasonal effect too, but I started manually turning on a little moonlight over the tanks about three or four days before the full moon and leaving it on till about three or, three or four days after the full moon and then turning it off for the rest of the month. And that really concentrated those spawns of the candy bass around the new moon and the Swiss guard bass around the full moon. And so I thought it would be nice to have a way to automate that. Um, so these um, high-tech controllers like uh, Apex, the Apex controller, which again, I'm, I'm a technophobe. I don't have any of this stuff. I just have a vague understanding of how it all works. But I hear people talking about it. And I know it's revolutionizing the industry, especially for reef keepers. But um, the idea of using something like this to coordinate your lighting regime, your temperature regime, and your lunar regime to either, um, to either uh, mirror the natural cycles and, kind of, and, and, and get fish more synchronized with those circadian rhythms, uh, or compress it so you could get the whole year compressed into a two or three week period. Uh, which works for some species and not for others, but, but just the idea that you could have that kind of control could be extremely helpful in coordinating spawns. I'll let you know if I ever get first-hand experience with that, but uh, that's a great one. Um, another thing that's really helped tremendously in seahorses and, and in a lot of other species are just um, this, it's not such a new wave anymore. Cyclopes came out while I was still at Sequest and, and was tremendously helpful as a transition food. P.E. Mysis, I think, was a few years after I got out of there and started in with seahorses. And, you know, seahorse, just seahorse keeping at all was really in the dark ages until high-quality frozen mycids got onto the scene. And of course, it's, it's helped with lots of other species too. And there are other ones out there. You know, there's, there's now saltwater mycids available. Uh, cyclopes, you can't even get frozen cyclopes anymore, but there are a number of other frozen copepod products out that I can't live without anymore. My, my copepod of choice for a frozen food now I don't think it even has a brand name. Um, Gemco, a company in New Jersey, sells these packs of frozen cyclops, and they're, they're wild collected copepods. I think he imports them from Asia, but uh, they're, they're small, they're smaller than cyclopes, but they're a key transition food in all of my larval rearing now. Um, so that's number five. Number four, getting back to the gramas. Um, as I keep coming back to them because they're the poster child for a fish that I always thought was not feasible to do on a large scale, uh, but, but I'm, I'm rethinking this now. When I started doing gramas um, after leaving Sequest and I didn't have a night watchman to siphon larvae out of tanks anymore, I came up with this little contraption. It's um, needlepoint material you buy from a craft store and I glue it into a little box and I put a light over it and uh, the larvae as they hatch out of their nests will swim through little holes and they'll accumulate in there. I get a little collection of uh, larvae in there in the morning and it's, it's helped me raise a few gramas. It's been great for blennies and skillet fish and lipogramma, the first ever lipogramma 
uh, raised in captivity, was collected in this crude little thing. Um, but then I heard about this thing, the patented Vossen larval trap. Um, Chad Vossen makes these, and they sell them through bulk reef supply now. And I would look at, I looked at it and said, this, I could make something better than this. I don't know, you know. But I couldn't, and I didn't. I, now, I use these, and um, they're fantastic. This is what I use to collect all of my grama larvae now. And if you time it right and you have a good bunch of spawning gramas, you can, and, and really, it works for any fish where you need to let them hatch in the tank. People use them for clownfish, too. But with clownfish, you can remove the spawn, and it's a good idea to, I think. But, but for fish that hide their nests away and there's no batch of eggs you can pull out, this thing is critical, and it's the best tool I've seen for collecting these eggs yet, and uh, I wouldn't be growing gramas without it. The next one, more of a general uh, innovation in the industry, but has been tremendously helpful for my own larval rearing uh, efforts. Um, in, uh, in the molars that we use at the college, at Carteret Community College right now, we have this little um, bunch of uh, components that we get from Lowe's or Home Depot. It's an outdoor lighting fixture with a standard LED floodlight into it and a, and a dimmer on it, which is nice. Um, and I started pricing out what it's going to put to, you know, what it's going to cost to put these together. Should I put them over my larval tanks? In the meantime, I had a, a, a spare Kessel sitting around, and I put one of those on one of my larval tanks. And all right, so this is a hundred dollars, another twenty-five for the gooseneck, one hundred twenty-five dollars. Um, it was never my idea to have this be the primary lighting for my larval systems. But I tried it, and I started getting really good results out of these tanks. And one of the reasons was that I could control not only the intensity, but the color. And different larvae have different preferences for lighting. Just, you know, a, a larva that's otherwise very raisable, if the lighting's not just right, they'll go nose into the walls, or they'll freak out, or try to swim into the bottom, or through the surface. And they never orient themselves right to feed. And having this very fine tuning kind of control over the intensity and color of the light kind of lets you find that perfect sweet spot for whatever larvae you have. And it, another thing uh, that it's done is allowed me to, I, I always keep my lights on during the whole larval development stage, 24 hours, which I know isn't ideal, but when a light flicks off, larvae freak out. When it comes on abruptly, larvae freak out. I don't have my larval tanks on timers. But before going to bed, I turn down the intensity, I make it a little bluer, and it's you know, gradual enough that it's not a sudden shock, and it puts them into sort of a nighttime mode, and there's still enough light to feed if they want to, and they don't freak out from an abrupt drop in light. Um, these things ended up costing about $60 a piece to put together the different components, and I like this one so much more, I think it's worth the extra money. So these, this is the Kessel Tuna Blue light with the gooseneck, and there's a lot of them. So basically, the, the dimmable LEDs that are made for, for uh, reef aquariums, I'm finding, are very useful in my larval rearing tanks. And this, this one is my favorite so far. No one's paying me to say this. I didn't even tell anyone out there that I'm going to be talking about their products today. Um, the next one, I think, maybe has, well, 
it speaks for itself, I think. Anyone who's doing fish culture uh, anywhere right now knows about this one. And I have to give Larry a plug for a lot of reasons. For one thing, this has made a huge difference in my spawn quality. I remember talking to Frank Bench um, 10 years ago about some of these fantastic new fish he was breeding. And I, you know, I had the same question that everyone else had when he comes out with a new angelfish. What is the first food? What are you feeding those larvae? That, like to me, that was always the one thing I wanted to know. What are the larvae eating? What, and he said, you know, it's not always the first food. He said, if you give me good enough spawn quality, I can raise anything on rotifers because it, the spawn quality makes such a huge difference. And he said, one of the reasons I raise so many great fish is because a lot of these eggs I'm collecting out of the wild where they're eating exactly what they need. And that makes a world of difference. So um, I talked to different manufacturers in the industry about coming up with a broodstock diet specifically formulated for the aquarium, aquarium fish production. Um, and it, you know, I, there, there was, a, when I was back at Sequest, Invey had this product called Lancy Breed, these pellets they made that you would feed to salmon or trout and it would condition them for spawning. And I used to get it and I would, it was, it was like dog food size pellets. They were huge. You couldn't use them and they were very hard. So I would get them and we would grind them down to a smaller size and sift them out and feed them to our fish. And it really did help. It was, it's, a, it's a good food, but they only made it in this one very hard pellet size. So I had this idea, there's, there's gotta be a good broodstock diet out there. So I'd, I'd go to a MACNA or another event, event, and I'd go to different food producers and I'd say, hey, I have this idea for a food, something that's geared toward conditioning fish for producing good, healthy gametes. We need better spawn quality. And I'd say, it, it, it needs, you know, it needs to be high in DHA, it needs to be high in all the hoofas, it has to have a 10 to 1 ratio of you know, DHA to EPA, it needs to have, you know, and they'd say, well, our food already has all that. Our food already is, is you know, they would, they would spout a sales pitch back to me about how their food was already perfect and there was no reason to improve on it and I should just use that. And so I would walk away and say, I can't talk to this guy. And finally, I think it was at M MBI, I don't know, I don't remember where it was, but I have a conversation with Larry, and I said, the industry needs a broodstock diet, and I can't tell you everything that it needs in it. You're gonna need to talk to other people too, but we need a broodstock diet. It needs to be high in the highly unsaturated fatty acids. It needs to have squid. It needs to have, you know, I, I sent him some papers. He went and consulted with Andy and, and with other people in the industry. And he came out with it, and it was a risk because he was putting some money into developing this product. But I think it's safe to say it's been a success, and I have to, uh, I have to give him credit for not only producing it, but to be humble enough to admit that he didn't already have the perfect product and was listening to what people were saying and willing to try this. And I'm very thankful to Larry for producing this because it's made a huge difference in my own fish room. I'm also grateful for the Swedish fish. Um, back on the subject of foods and Artemia. Back all through the 80s and 90s, all of our um, efforts in having better success with raising larvae went into trying to get the nutritionally deficient Artemia to be more like a copepod. We knew that copepods were the answer, but uh, 
they just seemed impossible. We couldn't find copepods that we could raise easily enough that, would, um, that, that, that wouldn't crash and that we could raise in a high enough density. I remember the first paper I ever read on cultured copepods being used to raise fish. It was, they were raising flounder. And it was the first paper I ever read where they used cultured copepods and compared them to Artemia and got fantastic results. And I was looking at, the, you know, their, their copepod density was like three per ml. And they had a few small tanks of flounder larvae and their copepod culture tanks were the size of Olympic swimming pools. It was, it, you know, and I thought, that's fantastic, but this'll never work. We can't, we can't have that kind of proportion. And I always thought maybe, and Bill, Bill Addison always said this too, somewhere out there is the perfect copepod. We just haven't found it yet. And so I think more than any other innovation in the last 20 years of marine aquaculture is the, is the isolation and, and now availability of cultured copepods that can be grown in high density. And I know there are a lot of sources and I really have to, and I know I've been preaching this for years, but I gotta give credit to Eric Sten and Algagen for the number one innovation that's made life better for fish culturists. Uh, because I really think he's done more than anyone else to isolate and distribute these things and get them into the trade. And um, so I, I think probably the gramas and, and some of the other species I'm raising now, I, I couldn't have anywhere near the success, but for probably um, the majority of the industry firsts that I've had and many others have had, it never would have happened without the availability of copepods like Parvocalinus and Apocyclops and Acarsia. Um, really everything up here I think is, is really uh, only in the industry because of that. And um, Another thing that I meant to talk about a half hour ago is, is just that um, this idea of uh, you know, becoming a star in fish culture because you raised something for the first time is, is really meaningless when you raise just two or three. And uh, so many of my industry firsts ended there. And um, I think really the most important thing moving forward is to move to that next step of getting these things into production. And uh, in the past, I failed at that. You know, you spend 15 years trying to raise a liopropoma and you finally get three of them through to metamorphosis and you say, I, I can't look at another one. I don't even want to look at another candy bass because I, I'm, I'm sick of them and they burned me out. I had to take a break from larval rearing after getting that one through. And uh, it, it didn't, you know, it was inspirational. It was cool. Uh, it was fun to watch them develop, but it didn't really do anything for the industry. And um, I'm, I'm seeing a, a giant shift happening in the industry in these last few years where we're kind of putting that, let's just chip away at every single new species and, and we're moving toward getting them into production. And I think that's where um, Tom Bowling and, and Biota are making tremendous strides right now. They're not only churning out new species, but they're getting them into mass production and getting them into, uh, into the industry. And uh, I, have to, I have to thank them for that and for, and for uh, this latest work that they're doing and our partnership and, and uh, some of the other um, players in the game that have been supporters over the years, uh, ESV, my favorite salt, 
Uh, Bob Stark's been a great supporter. The college, of course. Reefs.com has given me a great outlet to report on all of my work. And I'm sorry I haven't written anything in a year or two, but I'm, I'm getting my life back together. Articles are coming, I promise. Um, uh, Marco Rocks has made a great um, contribution to our lab in terms of some rock that's going to be featured in lots of our broodstock tanks and, and maybe get into some other things. LRS, of course. Um, thanks for the food. And uh, for, for years, before I've been in the commercial game, uh, Larry's been great at, at keeping me going with food. And of course, of course, Algogen. Um, and for everyone else I haven't mentioned, all my friends who have uh, supported me in other ways just by being there for me, uh, a lot of you are in this room. And of course, my number one helper now, my buddy Finn here, who puts up with me at all hours of the day and night working in the lab and also helps me pack up every shipment of fish and uh, helps me make our special little what are they called? Uh, our little shelters that we put in the bags to keep the fish happy. He, may, he gets paid for it, but it's a big help. Thanks, buddy. You have anything you want to say? No? Okay. Well, thanks all for listening, and uh, I'm really excited about the things that are still to come in this field of fish culture. Anyone have any questions?